Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. Volume 7, Chapter 12 In spite of himself, Enoch couldn't get over the expectation that the new Jesus was going to do something for him in return for his services. This was the virtue of hope, which was made up in Enoch of two parts suspicion and one part lust, that operated on him all the rest of the day after he left Sabbath Hawks. He had only a vague idea how he wanted to be rewarded, but he was not a boy without ambition. He wanted to become something. He wanted to better his condition until it was the best. He wanted to be the young man of the future, like the ones in the insurance ads. He wanted some day to see a line of people waiting to shake his hand. All afternoon he fidgeted and fooled in his room, biting his nails and shredding what was left of the silk off the landlady's umbrella. Finally he denuded it entirely and broke off the spokes. What was left was a black stick with a sharp seal point on one end and a dog's head on the other. It might have been an instrument for some kind of specialized kind of torture that had gone out of fashion. Enoch walked up and down his room with it under his arm and realized it would distinguish him on the sidewalk. About seven o'clock in the evening, he put on his coat and took the stick and headed for a little restaurant two blocks away. He had the sense that he was setting off to get some honor, but he was very nervous, as if he were afraid he might have to snatch it instead of receive it. He never set out for anything without eating first. The restaurant was called the Paris Diner. It was a tunnel about six feet wide, located between a shoeshine parlor and a dry-cleaning establishment. Enoch slid in and climbed up on the far stool at the counter and said he would have a bowl of split-pea soup and a chocolate malted milkshake. The waitress was a tall woman with a big yellow dental plate and the same color hair done up in a black hairnet. One hand never left her hip. She filled orders with the other. Although Enoch came in every night, she had never learned to like him. Instead of filling his order, she began to fry bacon. There was only one other customer in the place, and he had finished his meal and was reading a newspaper. There was no one to eat the bacon but her. Enoch reached over the counter and prodded her hip with his stick. Listen here, he said. I've got to go. I'm in a hurry. Go then, she said. Her jaw began to work, and she stared into the skillet with a fixed attention. Let me just have a piece of that there cake yonder, he said, pointing to a half of pink and yellow cake on a round glass stand. I thinks I got something to do. I gots to be going. Set it up there next to him, he said, indicating the customer reading the newspaper. He slid over the stools and began reading the outside sheet of the man's paper. The man lowered the paper and looked at him. Enoch smiled. The man raised the paper again. Could I borrow some part of your paper you ain't to stud in? Enoch asked. The man lowered it again and stared at him. He had muddy, unflinching eyes. He leafed deliberately through the paper and shook out the sheet with the comic strips and handed it to Enoch. It was Enoch's favorite part. He read it every evening like an office. While he ate the cake that the waitress had torpedoed down the counter at him, he read and felt himself surge with kindness and courage and strength. When he finished one side, he turned the sheet over and began to scan the advertisements for movies that filled the other side. His eye went over three columns without stopping, and then it came to a box that advertised Gonga, Giant Jungle Monarch and listed the theaters he would visit on his tour, and the hours he would be at each. In thirty minutes he would arrive at the Victory on 57th Street, and that would be his last appearance in the city. If anyone had watched Enoch read this, he would have seen a certain transformation in his countenance. It still shone with the inspiration he had absorbed from the comic strips, but something else had come over it, a look of awakening. The waitress happened to turn around to see if he hadn't gone. What's the matter with you? Did you swallow a seed? I knows what I want, Enoch murmured. I know what I want, too, she said with a dark look. 
Enoch felt for his stick and laid his change on the counter. I gots to be going. Don't let me keep you, she said. You may not see me again, he said, the way I am. Anyway, I don't see you will be all right by me, she said. Enoch left. It was a pleasant damp evening, and the puddles on the sidewalk shone, and the store windows were steamy and bright with junk. He disappeared down a side street and made his way rapidly along the darker passages of the city, pausing only once or twice at the end of an alley to dart a glance in each direction before he ran on. The Victory was a small theater, suited to the needs of the family, in one of the closer subdivisions. He passed through a succession of lighted areas, and then on through more alleys and back streets until he came to the business section that surrounded it. Then he slowed up. He saw it about a block away, glittering in its darker setting. He didn't cross the street to the side it was on, but kept on the far side, moving forward with his squint fixed on the glary spot. He stopped when he was directly from it and hit himself in a narrow stair cavity that divided a building. The truck that carried Ganga was parked across the street, and the star was standing under the marquee, shaking hands with an elderly woman. She moved aside, and a gentleman in a polo shirt stepped up and shook hands vigorously, like a sportsman. He was followed by a boy of about three who wore a tall western hat that nearly covered his face. He had to be pushed ahead by the line. Enoch watched for some time, his face working with envy. The small boy was followed by a lady in shorts, she by an old man who tried to draw extra attention to himself by dancing up instead of walking in a dignified way. Enoch suddenly darted across the street and slipped noiselessly into the open back door of the truck. The handshaking went on until the feature picture was ready to begin. Then the star got back in the van and the people filed into the theater. The driver and the man, who was master of ceremonies, climbed into the cab part and the truck rumbled off. It crossed the city rapidly and continued on the highway, going very fast. There came from the van certain thumping noises, not those of the normal gorilla, but they were drowned out by the drone of the motor and the steady sound of wheels against the road. The night was pale and quiet with nothing to stir it but an occasional complaint from a hoot owl and the distant, muted jarring of a freight train. The truck sped on until it slowed for a crossing, and as the van rattled over the tracks, a figure slipped from the door and almost fell, and then limped hurriedly off toward the woods. Once in the darkness of a pine thicket, he laid down a pointed stick he had been clutching on something bulky and loose he had been carrying under his arm and began to undress. He folded each garment neatly after he had taken it off and then stacked it on top of the last thing that he had removed. When all his clothes were in the pile, he took up the stick and began making a hole in the ground with it. The darkness of the pine grove was broken by paler moonlit spots that moved over him now and again and showed him to be Enoch. His natural appearance was marred by a gash that ran from the corner of his lip to his collarbone and by a lump under his eye that gave him a dulled and sensitive look. Nothing could have been more deceptive, for he was burning with the intensest kind of happiness. He dug rapidly until he had made a trench about a foot long and a foot deep. Then he placed the stack of clothes in it and stood aside to rest a second. Burying his clothes was not a symbol to him of burying his former self. He only knew he wouldn't need them any more. As soon as he got his breath, he pushed the displaced dirt over the hole and stamped it down with his foot. He discovered while he did this that he still had his shoes on. And when he finished, he removed them and threw them from him. Then he picked up the loose, bulky object and shook it vigorously. In the uncertain light, one of his lean white legs could be seen to disappear, then the other. One arm and then the other. A black, heavier, shaggier figure replaced his. For an instant it had two heads, one light and one dark. But after a second it pulled the dark back head over the other and corrected this. It busied itself with certain hidden fastenings and what appeared to be minor adjustments to his hide. For a time after this it stood very still and didn't do anything. 
Then it began to growl and beat its chest. It jumped up and down and flung its arms and thrust its head forward. The growls were thin and uncertain at first, but they grew louder after a second. They became low and poisonous. Louder again, low and poisonous again. They stopped altogether. The figure extended its hand, clutched nothing, and shook its arm vigorously. It withdrew the arm and extended it again, and clutched nothing and shook. It repeated this four or five times. Then it picked up the pointed stick and placed it at a cocky angle under its arm, and left the woods for the highway. No gorilla in existence, whether in the jungles of Africa or California, or in New York City in the finest apartment in the world, was happier at that moment than this one, whose God had finally rewarded it. A man and woman sitting close together on a rock just off the highway were looking across an open stretch of valley at a view of the city in the distance, and they didn't see the shaggy figure approaching. The smokestacks and square tops of the buildings made a black, uneven wall against the lighter sky, and here and there a steeple cut a sharp wedge out of a cloud. The young man turned his back just in time to see the gorilla standing a few feet away, hideous and black, with its hand extended. He eased his arm from round the woman and disappeared silently into the woods. She, as soon as she turned her eyes, fled screaming down the highway. The gorilla stood as though surprised, and presently its arm fell to its side. It sat down on the rock where they had been sitting, and stared over the valley at the uneven skyline of the city. Chapter 13 On his second night out working with his hired prophet and the Holy Church of Christ Without Christ, Hoover Schultz made $15.35 clear. The prophet got $3 an evening for his services and the use of his car. His name was Solace Layfield. He had consumption and a wife and six children, and being a prophet was about as much work as he wanted to do. It never occurred to him that it might be a dangerous job. The second night out, he failed to observe a high, rat-colored car parked about a half block away and a white face inside it, watching him with a kind of intensity that means something is going to happen no matter what is done to keep it from happening. The face watched him for almost an hour while he performed on the nose of his car every time Hoover Schultz raised his hand with two fingers pointed. When the last showing of the movie was over, and there were no more people to attract, Hoover paid him, and the two of them got in his car and drove off. They drove about ten blocks to where Hoover lived. The car stopped, and Hoover jumped out, calling, See you tomorrow night, friend! Then he went inside a dark doorway, and Solace Layfield drove on. A half block behind him, the other rat-colored car was following steadily. The driver was Hazel Motes. Both cars increased their speed, and in a few minutes they were heading rapidly toward the outskirts of town. The first car cut off onto a lonesome road where the trees were hung with moss, and the only light came like stiff antenna from the two cars. Hayes gradually shortened the distance between them, and then, grinding his motor suddenly, he shot ahead and rammed the back of the other car. Both cars came to a stop. Hayes backed the Essex a little way down the road while the prophet got out of his car and stood squinting in the glare of Hayes's lights. After a second, he came to the window of the Essex and looked in. There was no sound but the crickets and the tree frogs. What you want? He said in a nervous voice. Hayes didn't answer. He only looked at him, and in a second the man's jaw slackened and he seemed to perceive the resemblance in their clothes and possibly their faces. What you want, he said in a higher voice. I ain't done nothing to you. Hayes ground the motor of the Essex again and shot forward. This time he rammed the other car at such an angle that it rolled to the side of the road and into the ditch. The man got up off the ground where he had been thrown and ran back to the window of the Essex. He stood about four feet away looking in. What you keep a thing like that on the road for, Hayes asked. There ain't nothing wrong with that car, the man said. How's it come you knocked it in the ditch? Take off that hat, Hayes said. 
Listen here, said the man beginning to cough. What you want? Quit, quit looking at me. Said, Say what you want. You ain't true, Hayes said. What do you get up on top of a car and say you don't believe in what you do believe in for? <sighs> What's it to you what I do? The man wheezed. What do you do it for? Hayes asked. That's what I asked you. A man has to look out for himself, the other prophet said. You ain't true, Hayes said. You believe in Jesus. What's it to you? The man said. What'd you knock my car off the road for? Take off that hat and that suit, Hayes said. Listen here. I ain't trying to mock you. He 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 bought me this here suit, and I I thrown my other away, the man said. Hayes reached out and brushed the man's white hat off. Take off that suit, he said. The man began to sidle off out into the middle of the road. Take off that suit, Hayes shouted, and started the car forward after him. Solace began to lope down the road, taking off his coat as he went. Take it all off, Hayes yelled, with his face close to the windshield. The prophet began to run in earnest. He tore off his shirt and unbuckled his belt and ran out of his trousers. He began grabbing for his feet as he would take off his shoes, too, but before he could get at them, the Essex knocked him flat and ran him over. Hayes drove about twenty feet and stopped the car and then began to back it. He backed it over the body and stopped and got out. The Essex stood half over the prophet as if it were pleased to guard what it had finally brought down. The man didn't look so much like Hayes lying on the ground on his face without his hat or suit on. A lot of blood was coming out of him and forming a puddle around his head. He was motionless, all but for one finger that moved up and down in front of his face, as if he were marking time with it. Hayes poked his toe in his side, and he wheezed for a second, and then was quiet. Two things I can't stand, Hayes said. A man that ain't true, and one that mocks what is. You shouldn't ever have tampered with me if you didn't want what you got. The man was trying to say something, but he was only wheezing. Hayes squatted down by his face to listen. Give yeah, my mother a lot of trouble, he said through a kind of bubbling in his throat. Never give her no rest. Stole that of their car. Never told the truth to my daddy. Or give Henry what I never give him. You shut up. He said, leaning his head closer to hear the confession. Told where it still was. Got five dollars for it. You shut up now, Hayes said. Jesus, the man said. Shut up like I told you now, Hayes said. Jesus, help me, the man wheezed. Hayes gave him a hard slap on the back, and he was finally quiet. He leaned down to hear if he was going to say anything else, but he wasn't breathing anymore. Hayes turned around and examined the front of the Essex to see if there had been any damage done to it. The bumper had a few splurts of blood on it, but that was all. Before he turned around and drove back to town, he wiped them off with a rag. Early the next morning, he got out of the back of the car and drove to a filling station to get the Essex filled up and checked for his trip. He hadn't gone back to his room, but he had spent the night parked in an alley, not sleeping but thinking about the life he was going to begin, preaching the church without Christ in a new city. At the filling station, a sleepy-looking white boy came out to wait on him, and he said he wanted the tank filled up, the oil and the water checked, and the tires tested for air, that he was going on a long trip. The boy asked him where he was going, and he told him to another city. The boy asked him if he was going that far in this car here. He said, yes, he was. He tapped the boy in the front of his shirt. He said nobody with a good car needed to worry about anything. Then he asked the boy if he understood that. The boy said, yes, he did, and that that was his opinion, too. Hayes introduced himself and said he was a preacher from the Church Without Christ, 
and that he preached every night on the nose of this very car here. He explained he was going to another city to preach. The boy filled up the gas tank and checked the water and oil and tested the tires, and while he was working, Hayes followed him around, telling him what it was right to believe. He said it was not right to believe anything you couldn't see or hold in your hands or test with your teeth. He said he had only a few days ago believed in blasphemy as the way to salvation, but that you couldn't even believe that, because then you were believing in something to blaspheme. As for the Jesus who had reported to have been born at Bethlehem and crucified on Calvary for man's sins, Hayes said, he was too foul a notion for a sane person to carry in his head. He picked up the boy's water bucket and banded on the concrete pavement to emphasize what he was saying. He began to curse and blaspheme Jesus in a quiet, intense way, but with such conviction that the boy paused from his work to listen. When he had finished checking the Essex, he said there was a leak in the gas tank and two in the radiator, and that the rear tire would probably last about twenty miles if he went slow. Listen, Hayes said, this car is just beginning its life. A lightning bolt couldn't stop it. It ain't no use to put water in it, the boy said, because it won't hold it. You put it in just the same, Hayes said, and he stood there and watched while the boy put it in. Then he got a road map from him and drove off, leaving little bead chains of water and oil and gas on the road. He drove very fast out onto the highway, but once he had gone a few miles, he had the sense that he was not gaining ground. Shacks and filling stations and road camps and 666 signs passed him, and deserted barns with CCC snuff ads peeling across them. Even a sign that said, Jesus died for you, which he saw deliberately did not read. He had the sense that the road was really slipping back under him. He had known all along that there was no more country, but he didn't know that there was not another city. He had not gone five miles on the highway before he heard a siren behind him. He looked around and saw a black patrol car coming up. It drove alongside him and the patrolman in it motioned for him to pull over to the edge of the road. The patrolman had a red, pleasant face and eyes the color of clear, fresh ice. I wasn't speeding, Hayes said. No, the patrolman agreed. You wasn't. I was on the right side of the road. Yes, you was, that's right, the cop said. What you want with me? I just don't like your face, the patrolman said. Where's your license? Well, I don't like your face either, Hayes said. And I don't have a license. Well, the patrolman said in a kindly voice, I don't reckon you need one. Well, I ain't got one if I do. Listen, the patrolman said, taking another tone. Would you mind driving your car up to the top of the next hill? I want you to see the view from up there. Prettiest view you ever did see. Hay shrugged, but he started the car up. He didn't mind finding the patrolman if that's what he wanted. He drove to the top of the hill with the patrol car following close behind him. Now you turn it facing the embankment, the patrolman called. You'll be able to see better that way. Hayes turned it facing the embankment. Now maybe you better get out, the cop said. I think you could see better if he was out. Hayes got out and glanced at the view. The embankment dropped down for about 30 feet, sheer washed out red clay, into a partly burnt pasture where there was one scrub cow lying near a puddle. Over the middle distance, there was a one-room shack with a buzzard standing hunt-shouldered on the roof. The patrolman got behind the Essex and pushed it over the embankment, and the cow stumbled up and galloped across the field and into the woods. The buzzard flapped off a tree at the edge of the clearing. The car landed on its top, with three wheels that stayed on, spinning. The motor bounced out and rolled some distance away, and various odd pieces scattered this way and that. Them that don't have a car don't need a license, the patrolman said, dusting his hands on his pants. Hayes stood for a few minutes, looking over the scene. His face seemed to reflect the entire distance across the clearing and beyond the entire distance that extended from his eyes to the blank gray sky that went on, 
depth after depth into space. His knees bent under him, and he sat down on the edge of the embankment, with his feet hanging over. The patrolman stood staring at him. Did I give you a lift to where you was going? he asked. After a minute, he came a little closer and said, Where was you going? He leaned on down with his hands on his knees and said in an anxious voice, Was you going anywheres? No, Hayes said. The patrolman squatted down and put his hand on Hayes's shoulder. You hadn't planned to go anywheres? he asked anxiously. Hayes shook his head. His face didn't change and he didn't turn it toward the patrolman. It seemed to be concentrated on space. The patrolman got up and went back to his car and stood at the door of it, staring at the back of Hayes's hat and shoulder. And then he said, Well, I'll be seeing you. And he got in and drove off. After a while, Hayes got up and started walking back to town took him three hours to get inside the city again. He stopped at a supply store and bought a tin bucket and a sack of quicklime. Then he went on to where he lived, carrying these. When he reached the house, he stopped outside on the sidewalk, opened the sack of lime, and poured the bucket half full of it. Then he went to a water spigot by the front steps and filled up the rest of the bucket with water and started up the steps. His landlady was sitting on the porch, rocking a cat. What you gonna do with that, Mr. Moats? she asked. Blind myself, he said, and went into the house. The landlady sat there for a while longer. She was not a woman who felt more violence in one word than another. She took every word at its face value, but all the faces were the same. Still, instead of blinding herself, if she had felt that bad, she would have killed herself, and she wondered why anybody wouldn't do that. She would simply have put her head in an oven, or maybe have given herself too many painless sleeping pills, and that would have been that. Perhaps Mr. Motes was only being ugly. For what possible reason could a person have for wanting to destroy their sight? A woman like her, who was so clear-sighted, could never stand to be blind. If she had to be blind, she'd rather be dead. It occurred to her suddenly that when she was dead, she would be blind too. She stared in front of her intensely, facing this for the first time. She recalled the phrase, eternal death, that preachers used, but she cleared it out of her mind immediately, with no more change of expression than the cat. She was not religious or morbid, for which every day she thanked her stars. She would credit a person who had that streak with anything, though, and Mr. Motes had it or he wouldn't be a preacher. He might put lime in his eyes, and she wouldn't doubt it a bit, because they were all, if truth was only known, a little bit off in their heads. What possible reason could a sane person have for wanting to not enjoy himself any more? She certainly couldn't say. Chapter 14 But the landlady kept her thoughts about blindness in mind because after he had done it he continued to live in her house and every day the sight of him presented her with a question she first told him he couldn't stay because he wouldn't wear dark glasses and she didn't like to look at the mess he had made of his eye sockets at least she didn't think she did if she didn't keep her mind going on something else when he was near her she would find herself leaning forward staring into his face as if she expected to see something she hadn't seen before. This irritated her with him, and gave her the sense that he was cheating her in some secret way. He sat on her porch a good part of every afternoon, but sitting out there with him was like sitting by yourself. He didn't talk except when it suited him. You asked him a question in the morning, and he might answer it in the afternoon, or he might never. He offered to pay her extra to let him keep his room because he knew his way in and out, and she decided to let him stay, at least until she found out how she was going to be cheated. He got money from the government every month for something the war had done to his insides, so he was not obliged to work. Landlady had always been impressed with the ability to pay, 
When she found a stream of wealth, she followed it to its source, and before long it was not distinguishable from her own. She felt that the money she paid out in taxes returned to all the worthless pockets in the world, that the government not only sent it to foreign niggers and Arabs, but wasted it at home on blind fools and on every idiot who could sign his name on a card. She felt justified in getting any of it back that she could. She felt justified in getting anything at all back that she could, money or anything else, as if she had once owned the earth and been dispossessed of it. She couldn't look at anything steadily without wanting it, and what provoked her most was the thought that there might be something valuable hidden near her, something she couldn't see. To her, the blind man had the look of seeing something. His face had a peculiar pushing look, as if it were going forward after something it could distinguish in the distance. Even when he was sitting motionless in a chair, his face had the look of straining toward something. But she knew he was totally blind. She had satisfied herself of that as soon as he took off the rag he used for a while as a bandage. She had got one long good look, and it had been enough to tell her he had done what he'd said he was going to do. The other boarders, after he had taken off the rag, would pass him slowly in the hall, tiptoeing and looking as long as they could. But now they didn't pay any attention to him. Some of the new ones didn't know he had done it to himself. The Hawks girl had spread it over the house as soon as it happened. She had watched him do it. Then she had run to every room, yelling what he had done, and all the boarders had come running. That girl was a harpy if ever one lived, the landlady felt. She had hung around pestering him for a few days, and then she had gone on off. She said she hadn't counted on no honest-to-Jesus blind man, and she was homesick for her papa. He had deserted her and gone off on a banana boat. The landlady hoped he was at the bottom of the sea salt. He had been a month behind in his rent. In two weeks, of course, she was back, ready to start pestering him again. She had the disposition of a yellow jacket and you could hear her a block away shouting and screaming at him, and him never opening his mouth. The landlady conducted an orderly house, and she told him so. She told him that when the girl lived with him, he would have to pay double. She said there were things she didn't mind and things she did. She left him to draw his own conclusions about what she meant by that, but she waited with her arms folded until he had drawn them. He didn't say anything. He only counted out three more dollars and handed them to her. That girl, Mr. Motes, is only after your money. If that was what she wanted, she could have it. I'd pay her to stay away, he said. The thought that her tax money would go to support such trash was more than the landlady could bear. Don't do that, she said quickly. She's got no right to it. The next day, she called the welfare people and made arrangements to have the girl sent to a detention home. She was curious to know how much he got every month from the government, and with that set of eyes removed, she felt at liberty to find out. She steamed open the government envelope as soon as she found it in the mailbox the next time. In a few days, she felt obliged to raise his rent. He had made arrangements with her to give him meals, and as the price of food went up, she was obliged to raise his board also. But she didn't get rid of the feeling that she was being cheated. Why had he destroyed his eyes and saved himself, unless he had some plan, unless he saw something that he couldn't get without being blind to everything else? She meant to find out everything she could about him. "'Where are your people from, Mr. Motes?' she asked him one afternoon when they were sitting on the porch. "'I don't suppose they're alive.' She supposed she might suppose what she pleased. He didn't disturb his doing nothing to answer her. None of my people's alive either. All Mr. Flood's people alive, but him. She said she was a Mrs. Flood. They all come here when they want a handout, but Mr. Flood had money. He died in the crack-up of an airplane. After a while, he said, My people are all dead. Mr. Flood, she said, died in the crack-up of an airplane. She began to enjoy sitting on the porch with him, but she could never tell if he knew she was there or not. Even when he answered her, she couldn't tell if he knew it was she. She herself, Mrs. Flood, the landlady, 
not just anybody. They would sit, he only sit, and she sit rocking, for half an afternoon, and not two words seemed to pass between them, though she might talk at length. If she didn't talk and keep her mind going, she would find herself sitting forward in her chair, looking at him with her mouth not closed. Anyone who saw her from the sidewalk would think she was being courted by a corpse. She observed his habits carefully. He didn't eat much or seem to mind anything she gave him. If she had been blind, she would have sat by the radio all day, eating cake and ice cream and soaking her feet. He ate anything and never knew the difference. He kept getting thinner, and his cough deepened, and he developed a limp. During the first cold months, he took the virus, and he walked out every day in spite of that. He walked about half of each day. He got up early in the morning and walked in his room. She could hear him below in hers, up and down, up and down. And then he went out and walked before breakfast, and after breakfast he went out again and walked until midday. He knew the four or five blocks around the house, and he didn't go any farther than those. He could have kept on one for all she saw. He could have stayed in his room in one spot, moving his feet up and down. He could have been dead and get all he got out of life for the exercise. He might as well have been one of them monks, she thought. He might as well be in a monkery. She didn't understand it. She didn't like the thought that something was being put over her head. She liked the clear light of day. She liked to see things. She could not make up her mind what would be inside his head and what out. She thought of her own head as a switch box where she controlled from, but with him she could only imagine the outside in, the whole black world in his head, and his head bigger than the world, his head big enough to include the sky and planets and whatever was or had been or would be. How would he know if time was going backwards or forwards, or if he was going with it. She imagined it was like you were walking in a tunnel and all you could see was a pinpoint of light. She had to imagine the pinpoint of light. She couldn't think of it at all without that. She saw it as some kind of star, like the star on Christmas cards. She saw him going backwards to Bethlehem, and she had to laugh. She thought it would be a good thing if he had something to do with his hands, something to bring him out of himself and get him in connection with the real world again. She was certain he was out of connection with it. She was not certain at times that he even knew she existed. She suggested he get a guitar and learn to strum it. She had a picture of them sitting on the porch in the evening and him strumming it. She had bought two rubber plants to make where they sat more private from the street, and she thought that the sound of him strumming it from behind the rubber plant would take away the dead look he had. She suggested it, but he never answered the suggestion. After he paid his room and board every month, he had a good third of the government check left that she could see, but he never spent any money. He didn't use tobacco or drink whiskey. There was nothing for him to do with all that money but lose it, since there was only himself. She thought of benefits that might accrue to his widow should he leave one, she had seen money drop out of his pocket and him not bother to reach down and feel for it. One day, when she was cleaning his room, she found four-dollar bills and some change in his trash can. He came in about that time from one of his walks. Mr. Motes, she said, here's a dollar bill and some change in this wastebasket. You know where your wastebasket is. How'd you make that mistake? It was left over. I didn't need it. She dropped onto his straight chair. Do you throw it away every month? She asked after a time. Only when it's left over, he said. The poor needy, she muttered. The poor needy. Don't you ever think about the poor needy? If you don't want that there money, somebody else might. You can have it, he said. Mr. Motes, she said coldly. I'm not charity yet. She realized now that he was a madman and that he ought to be under the control of a sensible person. The landlady was past her middle years, and her plate was too large, but she had long racehorse legs and a nose that had been called Grecian by one boarder. She wore her hair clustered like grapes on her brow, and over each ear and in the middle behind, 
but none of these advantages were of any use to her in attracting his attention. She saw that the only way was to be interested in what he was interested in. Mr. Motes, why don't you preach any more? She said one afternoon when they were sitting on the porch. Being blind wouldn't be a hindrance. People would like to go see a blind preacher. It would be something different. She was used to going on without an answer. You could get one of those seeing dogs, and he and you could get up a good crowd. People will always go to see a dog. For myself, she continued, I don't have that streak. I believe that what's right today is wrong tomorrow, and that the time to enjoy yourself is now so long as you let others do the same. I'm as good, Mr. Motes, not believing in Jesus, as many a one that does, she said. You're better, he said, leaning forward suddenly. If you believed in Jesus, you wouldn't be so good. He had never paid her a compliment before. Why, Mr. Motes, I expect you're a fine preacher. You certainly ought to start it again. It would give you something to do. As it is, you don't have anything to do but walk. Why don't you start preaching again? I can't preach any more, he muttered. Why? I don't have time, he said, and got up and walked off the porch as if she had reminded him of some urgent business. He walked as if his feet hurt, but he had to go on. Sometime later, she discovered why he limped. She was cleaning his room and happened to knock over his extra pair of shoes. She picked them up and looked into them, as if she thought she might find something hidden there. The bottom pieces of them were lined with gravel and broken glass and pieces of small stone. She spilled this out and sifted it through her fingers, looking for a glitter that might mean something valuable. But she saw that what she had in her hand was trash that anybody could pick up in the alley. She stood for some time holding the shoes, and finally she put them back under the cot. In a few days, she examined them again, and they were lined with fresh rocks. Who's he doing this for? she asked herself. What's he getting out of doing it? And every now and then, she would have an intimation of something hidden, near her but out of her reach. Mr. Motes, why do you walk on rocks for? She said that day when he was in her kitchen eating his dinner. To pay, he said in a harsh voice. Pay for what? It don't make any difference for what I'm paying. But what have you got to show that you're paying for? She persisted. Mind your business. You can't see it, he said rudely. The landlady continued to chew very slowly. Do you think, Mr. Motes, that when you're dead you're blind? I hope so, he said after a minute. Why? She asked, staring at him. After a while, he said, if there's no bottom in your eyes, they hold more. The landlady stared for a long time, seeing nothing at all. She began to fasten all her attention on him, to the neglect of other things. She began to follow him in his walks, meeting him accidentally and accompanying him. He didn't seem to know she was there, except occasionally when he would slap at his face, as if her voice bothered him, like the singing of a mosquito. He had a deep, wheezing cough, and she began to badger him about his health. There's no one to look after you but me, Mr. Motes. No one that has your interest at heart but me. Nobody would care if I didn't. She began to make him tasty dishes and carry them to his room. He would eat what she brought immediately with a wry face and hand back the plate without thanking her, as if all his attention were directed elsewhere and that this was an interruption he had to suffer. One morning he told her abruptly that he was going to get his food somewhere else, and named a place, a diner around the corner run by a foreigner. You'll rue the day, she said. You'll pick up an infection. No sane person eats there. Dark and filthy place. Encrusted. It's you that can't see, Mr. Motes. Crazy fool, she muttered when he had walked off. Wait till winter comes. Where will you eat when winter comes, when the first wind blows the virus into you? She didn't have to wait long. He caught influenza before the winter. And for a while he was too weak to walk out, 
and she had the satisfaction of bringing his meals to his room. She came earlier than usual one morning and found him asleep, breathing heavily. The old shirt he wore to sleep was open down the front and showed three strands of barbed wire wrapped around his chest. She retreated backwards to the door and then dropped the tray. Mr. Motes, she said in a thick voice, what do you do these things for? It's not natural. He pulled himself up. What's that wire around you for? It's not natural, she repeated. After a second, he began to button his shirt. It's natural, he said. Well, it's not normal. It's like one of them gory stories. It's something that people have quit doing, like boiling an oil or being a saint or walling up cats. There's no reason for it. People have quit doing it. They ain't quit doing it as long as I'm doing it, he said. People have quit doing it, she repeated. What do you do it for? I'm not clean, he said. She stood staring at him, unmindful of the broken dishes at her feet. I know it, she said after a minute. You've got blood on that nightshirt, on the bed. You ought to get you a washwoman. That's not the kind of clean I meant, he said. There's only one kind of clean, Mr. Motes, she muttered. She looked down and observed the dishes he had made her break and the mess she would have to clean up. She left for the hall closet and returned in a minute with a dustpan and a broom. It's easier to bleed than sweat, Mr. Motes, she said in a high voice of sarcasm. You must believe in Jesus or you wouldn't do these foolish things. You must have been lying to me when you named your fine church. I wouldn't be surprised if you weren't some kind of an agent of the Pope or got some connection with something funny. I ain't treating with you, he said and lay back down coughing. You've got nobody to take care of you but me, she reminded him. Her first plan had been to marry him, and then have him committed to the state institution for the insane. But gradually her plan had become to marry him and keep him. Watching his face had become a habit with her. She wanted to penetrate the darkness behind it and see for herself what was there. She had the sense that she had tarried long enough and that she must get him now while he was weak, or not at all. He was so weak from the influenza that he tottered when he walked. Winter had already begun, and the wind slashed the house from every angle, making a sound like sharp knives swirling in the air. Nobody in their right mind would like to be out on a day like this, she said, putting her head suddenly into his room in the middle of the morning on one of the coldest days of the year. Do you hear that wind, Mr. Motes? It's fortunate for you that you have this warm place to be and someone to take care of you. She made her voice more than usually soft. Every blind and sick man is not so fortunate as to have somebody who takes care of him. She came in and sat down on the straight chair that was just at the door. She sat on the edge of it, leaning forward with her legs apart and her hands braced on her knees. Let me tell you, Mr. Motes, Few men are as fortunate as you, but I can't keep climbing these stairs. It wears me out. I've been thinking what we could do about it. He had been lying motionless on the bed, but he sat up suddenly as if he were listening, almost as if he had been alarmed by the tone of her voice. I know you wouldn't want to give up your room here, she said, and waited for the effect of this. He turned his face toward her. She could tell she had his attention. I know you like it here and wouldn't want to leave, and you're a sick man and needs somebody to take care of you as well as being blind, she said, and found herself breathless, and her heart beginning to flutter. He reached to the foot of the bed and felt for his clothes that were rolled up there, he began to put them on hurriedly over his nightshirt. I've been thinking how we could arrange it so you would have a home and somebody to take care of you, and I wouldn't have to climb these stairs. What's you dressing for today, Mr. Motes? You don't have to go out in this weather. I've been thinking, she went on, watching him as he went on with what he was doing. And I see there's only one thing for you and me to do. Get married. It wouldn't do under any ordinary condition, but I would do it for a blind man and a sick one. If we don't help each other, Mr. Motes, there's nobody to help us. Nobody. The world is an empty place. The suit that had been glare blue when it was bought 
was a softer shade now. The Panama hat was weak-colored. He kept it on the floor by his shoes when he was not wearing it. He reached for it and put it on, and then he began to put on his shoes that were still lined with rocks. Nobody ought to be without a place of their own to be, she said, and I'm willing to give you a home here with me, a place where you can always stay, Mr. Motes, and never worry yourself about. His cane was on the floor near where his shoes had been. He felt for it and then stood up and began to walk slowly toward her. I've got a place for you in my heart, Mr. Motes, she said, and felt it shaking like a little birdcage. She didn't know whether he was coming toward her to embrace her or not. He passed her, expressionless, out the door and into the hall. Mr. Motes, she said, turning sharply in the chair, I can't allow you to stay here under no other circumstances. I can't climb these stairs. I don't want a thing but to help you. You don't have anybody to look after you but me. Nobody to care if you live or die but me. No other place to be but mine. He was feeling for the first step with his cane. Or were you planning to find you another room in the house? She asked, voice getting higher. Maybe you were planning to go to some other city. That's not where I'm going, he said. There's no other house, nor no other city. There's nothing, Mr. Motes. And time goes forward. It don't go backward unless you take what's offered to you. You'll find yourself out in the cold, pitch black. And just how far do you think you'll get? He felt for each step with his cane before he put his foot on it. When he reached the bottom, she called down to him. You needn't to return to a place you don't value, Mr. Motes. The door won't be open for you. You can come back and get your belongings and then go on to wherever you think you're going. She stood at the top of the stairs for a long time. He'll be back, she muttered. Let the wind cut into him a little. That night, a driving icy rain came up, and lying in her bed, awake at midnight, Mrs. Flood, the landlady, began to weep. She wanted to run out into the rain and cold and hunt him down and find him huddled in some half-sheltered place and bring him back and say, Mr. Motes, Mr. Motes, you can stay here forever, or the two of us will go where you're going, the two of us will go. She had had a hard life, without pain and without pleasure. She thought that now she was coming to the last part of it. She deserved a friend. If she was going to be blind when she was dead, who better to guide her than a blind man? Who better to lead the blind than the blind who knew what it was like? Soon as it was daylight, she went out in the rain and searched the five or six blocks he knew and went from door to door asking for him, but no one had seen him. She came back and called the police and described him and asked for him to be picked up and brought back to her to pay his rent. She waited all day for them to bring him in the squad car or for him to come back of his own accord, but he didn't come. The rain wind continued, and she thought he was probably drowned in some alley by now. She paced up and down in her room, walking faster and faster, thinking of his eyes without any bottom in them, and of the blindness of death. Two days later, two young policemen, cruising in a squad car, found him lying in a drainage ditch near an abandoned construction project. The driver drew the squad car up to the edge of the ditch and looked into it for some time. Ain't we been looking for a blind one? he asked. The other consulted a pad. Blind and got a blue suit and ain't paid his rent, he said. Yonder he is, the first one said, and pointed into the ditch. The other moved up closer and looked out the window, too. His suit ain't blue, he said. Yeah, it is blue, the first one said. Quit pushing up so close to me. Get out and I'll show you his blue. They got out and walked around the car and squatted down on the edge of the ditch. They both had on tall new boots and new policeman clothes. They both had yellow hair with sideburns and they were both fat, but one of them was much fatter than the other. It might have used to been blue, the fatter one admitted. You reckon he's dead? The first one asked. Asked him, the other said. No, he ain't dead. He's moving. Maybe he's just unconscious, the fatter one said, taking out his new billy. They watched him for a few seconds, his hand moving along the edge of the ditch 
as if it were hunting for something to grip. He asked them in a hoarse whisper where he was and if it was day or night. It's day, the thinner one said, looking up at the sky. We gots to take you back to pay your rent. I want, I want to go on, I want to go on where I'm going, the blind man said. You got to pay your rent first, the policeman said. Every bit of it. The other, perceiving that he was conscious, hit him over the head with his new billy. We don't want to have no trouble with him. You take his feet. He died in the squad car, but they didn't notice, and took him on to the landladies. She had them put him on her bed, and when she had pushed them out the door, she locked it behind them and drew up a straight chair and sat down close to his face where she could talk to him. Well, Mr. Motes, I see you've come home. His face was stern and tranquil. I knew you'd come back, she said, and I've been waiting for you, and you needn't to pay any more rent, but have it free here. Have it any way you like, upstairs or down, just however you want it, and with me to wait on you. Or if you want to go on somewhere, we'll both go. She had never observed his face more composed. She grabbed his hand and held it to her heart. It was resistless and dry. The outline of a skull was plain under his skin, and the deep, burned eye sockets seemed to lead into the dark tunnel where he had disappeared. She leaned closer and closer to his face, looking deep into them, trying to see how she had been cheated or what had cheated her. But she couldn't see anything. She shut her eyes and saw the pinpoint of light, but so far away that she could not hold it steady in her mind. She felt as if she were blocked at the entrance of something. She sat staring with her eyes shut into his eyes and felt as if she had finally got to the beginning of something she couldn't begin. And she saw him moving farther and farther away, farther and farther into the darkness until he was the pinpoint of light. The End We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvula Audio presentation of Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. The opening and closing themes on volumes 1 through 6 was from the soundtrack of the 1979 John Huston-directed film Wise Blood and was composed by Alex North. The closing theme on Volume 7 was Long Black Train, composed by the eminent country singer Josh Turner. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook, or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you.